Hey, soul family, welcome to a brand new episode of Ceremony Circle. I am your host, shaman and author, Allison Charles. And today's gathering is likely the most picturesque, untamed, and unique one I've ever done, as we are sharing space with lion tracker, author, and steward of incredibly sacred and wild land in South Africa, Boyd Vardy. Now, this episode is a true wild African safari ride. Can you imagine what it would be like to grow up immersed in sacred ways, learning ancient rituals like animal tracking, connecting to wild animals like lions, snakes, rhinos, elephants, leopards, elon, and more on a daily basis? That is your home. Well, you will hear all about what that's like today as Boyd generously shares about that as well as the wild story around how his family came to own this land many generations ago and the even more astonishing ways that the land has evolved and why a single female leopard is largely to thank for that. Why Nelson Mandela decided to spend time on their land after being released from his 27 years in prison and Boyd shares some really lovely personal stories about Mr. Mandela's humble yet very embodied power. And as many of you know, my work with power animals, my book, Animal Power, is coming out in the fall. Of course, we have to go into animal stories as much as we can. So Boyd shares about a few very near-death experiences that will blow your mind and the medicine teachings and lessons that came with every single one of them. He talks about rituals that you can do to connect with the teachings and wisdom nature wants to impart to you wherever you are at any time, how one of his experiences with sacred plant medicine allowed him a deeper understanding for the first time, how growing up the way he did provided him very unique gifts, especially when it comes to his ability to hold such safe, deep and healing space for others. Another very unique story Boyd shares about spending 40 days and nights completely alone, living in a treehouse on the land and what that experience taught him, what tracking is and the tracking method Boyd teaches that helps you find your purpose in life. Villages, I love diving into this with him. He shares his perspective on what a village truly stands for and why villages are making such a big resurgence across the globe. We touch a bit on his work with shamanism, how he came to that truth activating within himself. And my favorite part about that is that while his shamanic path and his shamanism functions very differently than mine, I really treasure being able to come together with people who walk the shamanic path in a very devoted way, yet the way in which we are to immerse in it, share about it, be of service with it, and the way our missions are to function with it can be so different, yet we respect one another and we're able to honestly and healthily share about how it works for us. And the ceremonial immersion at the end, it's the first time in years I've let someone else guide me in an animal journey, and it's super fun. It is such a delight. I can't wait for you to experience it. This is a truly special episode. I recommend you allow yourself right now to be fully present to this Ceremony Circle Safari. And I want to thank Star Animal Sundays for making this episode possible. They are a line of ethically sourced, repurposed gold, fine jewelry that you might have guessed it, 
specializes in and highlights the world of power animals. And you know, that is one of the aspects of shamanism that is most near and dear to my heart. The power animal world emerged as my first guides after my spiritual awakening and even came to me to be a voice for them in writing the animal power book and card decks that will be out this year. So I recommend you heading to www.staranimalsundays, that's S-T-A-R-A-N-I-M-A-L-S-U-N-D-A-Y-S.com, staranimalsundays.com, and simply, and simply tuning in, feeling into all the animal options, and allowing your intuition to reveal to you what animal's medicine is calling to you most right now. They have necklaces, rings, bracelets. All of the diamonds are ethically sourced and the gold is repurposed. I'm currently wearing my horse necklace. One of the main healing attributes of horse is connecting to your fullest inner divine power and freedom. And I've been feeling those vibes lately. And at checkout, be sure to use the word STAR POWER, all capital letters, STAR POWER, because not only will that get you a beautiful discount, but 25% of sales using that code will be donated to a cause that's very near and dear to my heart. It's called the BOA Foundation, and they work to preserve sacred, and indigenous wisdom traditions from around the globe. So in true Boyd Vardy fashion, let's gather now by the fire and let's go into a healing storytelling voyage. Okay, oh my gosh, I've been like chomping at the bit to dive into this conversation with you, Boyd. Uh, Thank you for having me, great to be here. Yeah, and I love, you know, it took a while for Universe to click us together. Yes. But I had heard of this Boyd person for, <laughs> I felt like for years. I mean, I think truthfully it, it was a number of years because two of my closest friends have been good friends with you and have known you for a long time. And yet you live in South Africa. So, you know, it wasn't like I could just bump into <laughs> you in Brooklyn. Yeah, absolutely. And then it was so cool what made the timing of us meeting in Austin um, this past week even neater is that Ksenia, one of these mutual friends, you know, had her wedding on your family's sacred grounds. I know. It seems like it was all happening at once, you know. She was in South Africa. You know, you had heard about me through her. She was on the land. It was it was as if something intelligent was just moving all the pieces around. Totally. And what struck me, you know, Ksenia and I have been very, very, very dear sisters for many years But the second that that Zoom, so for those listening, yeah, she shared about this publicly, so I'm not like spilling any beans here, but Ksenia got married on Boyd's land, his family's land in Africa, and she did a Zoom wedding. Mm -hmm. And I was a part of this Zoom wedding, and she invited seven of us to do, you know, an offering or a blessing for their marriage. And so when the Zoom pinged on and I saw Eric standing there, at the altar area, I, I mean, it was pretty unexpected for me. I got blasted. <laughs> the energy came all the way through the screen. All the way through. And it just, it was one of those spiritual blasts where you just start to weep, mm-hmm. you know, because it's clearing and opening you in such a magnitude. Yeah. And yes, part of the weeping was, I love both of them dearly and they've been together and now they're getting married. But it was, I could just hear the voice, the land, the land. Mm-hmm. 
what, why is that land that strong? <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, it's such a great place to start. You know, the land has a story. The land has a story with the people there. And really, it's a story of transformation and it's a story of restoration. And it's a story of a profound uh, reconnection. It's a story of healing in some mm. ways. And the story begins in 1926 when my great-grandfather was at a tennis party and he heard about these bankrupt cattle farms that were being sold in the wild eastern part of South Africa. And were they being sold for like really low dollars? Being because... sold for no money uh. because they were dry and arid. The cattle were getting eaten by lions and it was just like a difficult place to operate. And so he had been drinking some gin and tonics and he decided, I'm going to buy one of these places. And he bought it in the consciousness of that time was he bought it because he wanted to go and hunt there. And so in the June of 1926, he went there for the first time and there was just nothing there. And in fact, most of the property was eye high scrubland. Mm. And what had happened is where the cattle had grazed the land bare, the land to defend itself when the rain falls, instead of being able to absorb the moisture, because of the bare ground. Instead, all the moisture runs off. And so the land tries to defend itself by putting up scrub, basically. And so that is what had happened there. And you could drive around there for hours and hours and you wouldn't see an animal. And we're talking 5,000 acres, right? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the translation into acres is, but yeah, about 6,000 hectares. So it's okay. even a little more than that. Okay. So a lot of land. <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's a big piece of land. So my grandfather went there to hunt and they would see the odd lion and hunt it. My grandfather went there to hunt and then my father and uncle grew up hunting there. And in 1969, there was a really defining moment and my grandfather died very suddenly. And in the wake of that loss, my father was 15 and my uncle was about 17. The family advisors gathered and said to them, well, you know, first things first, you've got to get rid of that wild place where you used to go hunting. It's, there's nothing going on there. It's scrubland. Hunting lions is dangerous, so like you got to get rid of it. And from a place very deep inside of himself, and this is what's been really the central interest of my life, from a place deep inside of himself, my 15-year-old father stood up and he said, we're going to keep the land. Oof. The family advisors said, well, how do you expect to take care of your mother now that she's widowed, that it's going to drain you of your finances? And he said, we'll make it valuable. And in that moment, quite incredibly, my grandmother, and this is, we know, the wisdom of the feminine, she looked at her 15-year-old and 17-year-old son and she said, I will do, I will support what the boys want to do. And so that started us on a journey and that's what got us into the safari business. So my dad as 15 and my uncle as a 17-year-old and then very soon my mother, that my father and mother met when they were teenagers, they started to try and get safaris going so they could generate an income. And it was a shambles. It was these three mud huts. There were no animals. And also, um, there was no running water. No running no water. Power. No power. So it was not a luxurious... <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it was, there was literally three mud huts. And <laughs> I'm told that when it rained, people would sometimes go outside for shelter because wow. the roof, you know. So it was this like ragtag operation. These young kids, but they were passionate about getting it going. And word got out that, you know, if you went out there, you wouldn't see any animals. but there was these three like very enthusiastic young people who would ha you'd have a great time with one way or another. Right. And that went on for quite some time. And then there was another defining moment. And that was the arrival of a man called Ken Tinley. He was a high school dropout who had been put into a biological sciences degree because he drew a picture of a moth with such intricate detail 
that the dean of the faculty said to him, okay, you're in. And then he had done a PhD in you know, fauna and flora, living alone in the wild for about a year in this wild reserve called Gorongosa in Mozambique. Mm. And during that time, something happened inside of Ken. And he connected very deeply with the land. And it was like he could sense the movement of water through the land. And he saw how that brought certain flowers and how that brought in certain animals. And he was in tune. It was as if like the rivers were running in his veins and he could feel the, the entire scape around him. And so he arrived and he met my father and uncle and my mother. And he said, if you want this place to work, you must partner with the land. Mm. You must think of the animals as your kin. Mm -hmm. And you must make sure that you bring in the local Shanghai people into this journey. Yes. And so they said to him, you know, partner with the land. What do you mean? And he said, come, I'll show you. And he would take them out to these erosive furrows where the cattle had grazed the land bare. The water had rain had fallen, and instead of being absorbed, it would run off, and you'd get these deep furrows, and you'd lose all that moisture. And he showed them how to clear the scrub and pack it into those erosive furrows. And as you did that, it was like putting the plug back in a bath. Mm. Suddenly, the soil charged with moisture, and the grassland started to return. And so they started to do this work, and this is where it was really profoundly impactful for me, Alison, is... You know, I would see them cutting away scrub and clearing away the scrub and it would look like destitute, you know. It would look like, oh, this looks terrible. It's all been cut away. And then you would go back there a year later and a grassland would be forming. Mm. And then a year later, you'd go back and a herd of uh, wildebeest or a herd of waterbuck had come to graze. Because they could sustain themselves there more. S suddenly, as the terrain started mm. to open up, the animals started to return onto the grassland. And... You know, those two, I, I know it's quite metaphorical, but for me as a healer, you know, there's two things that I see as the one is when someone has been badly traumatized. I always think of a person almost as a landscape. When a person has been badly traumatized, the very thing they need to help them heal is the thing they're hardened against. You know, so when that rain runs off and the earth can't absorb it, it's like a person who's been hardened. The, if you bring a lot of love and care at them, mm. it'll, it'll, it's almost terrifying. Right. You know? Um, and they'll put their defenses up and try to push it away. That vulnerability that it creates is scary. Yeah. You know? And the other thing is, you know, I, I grew up watching nature transform, watching, you know, no animals and then scrubland and then the scrub being cut away and this like destitute open terrain and then grasslands returning and then the animals returning. So those two sort of things went very deeply into my being, those two encounters with nature. Meantime, my father and uncle and my mother are working on the land and one afternoon, my father and uncle are driving home. They've been out working on, the, uh, on getting the scrubland cleared away. And they're driving home. And in the late afternoon light, a female leopard steps out onto the road. And for a moment, she stops on the road and she turns and she looks at them. Now, before that moment, any leopard you saw was just running to get away from you. They'd been hunted. Mm -hmm. But this leopard stops. And for a moment, she connects. And then she stands there for a good two minutes and allows herself to be seen. Mm. And then she slips off the road. Ooh, I feel that. <laughs> and these two, they drive oh. home together and they, they stop the Land Rover. And I don't know if you've ever had like a big encounter when you've been in a vehicle, you know, they stop and they just sit there. And then my uncle looks at my father and he said, whatever just happened, that's my future. And again, from this very deep place inside of him, he knew. And so for the next 10 years, he teamed up with a Shangan tracker and they went out and every day they would track this leopard. 
And then they would get an opportunity to view her from 50 yards. And then they would go out the next day and days would go by, they wouldn't see her. And then they would see her again and they would see her at 20 yards. And over the course of a few years, she began to realize that they meant her no harm. Mm-hmm. And then it got to the point where they were able to drive a vehicle in and they would be able to watch her from a vehicle. And she became known to us as the mother leopard because she started to grow up and her cubs started to realize that the safari vehicles meant her no harm. No one was going to do her any harm. And we called her the mother for two reasons. One, because she had numerous litters of cubs that grew up realizing we meant her no harm. And two, because suddenly word got out that there was a place in the world where you could go and see a wild leopard. And that just had tremendous energy to it. And people from all over the world started to come. And this bankrupt cattle farm started to turn into a thriving wilderness. You know, we improved the camps. We were able to start to employ many people from the local area. And this restoration of the natural world really became a place that showed if you partnered with nature, if you began the process of restoring, it just unlocked this incredible, powerful healing energy. Oh, my Lord. And so that's a long way to say, you know, when you clicked on and suddenly your energy became connected with that place, you became connected with a landscape that had restored. You became connected with a place where people and animals have rebuilt their trust with each other. And you became connected to a place where we are in a deep relationship of kinship with wilderness. Right, the sacredness, the reverence. All there, all there. You know, you can go out there and you can encounter an animal and be in its presence and be in its energy and it knows because for years and years we've been very sensitive about how we view the animals. It knows that if it gets uncomfortable with you, if it turns and shakes its head as if to say, enough now, that guide is, who works there is trained to say, Mm-mm. let's give this animal its space. We yeah. never push the animals. Ah. And so it's, it's really quite remarkable. And now what's becoming really interesting is over the last 10 years, my sister and I have worked very intensely to start to use it as a place where people can heal and a place where we can reconnect people with nature. And it has become even more magical. You know, now that we are setting intention, I mean, we didn't know this stuff growing up. We were just wild South Africans. But now that we're starting to understand to set intention, to actually ask that field of energy that is nature to teach us, Mm -hmm. to support us when we're running workshops there. Mm -hmm. I mean, just miraculous things happen. (laughs) Oh, I can imagine because like I said, it was so instant and so profound and in fact, I messaged Ksenia right after the wedding wrapped and I was like, congratulations and oh my gosh, the land there. And she's like, I know, right? It's just, it was very captivating. And so I was curious when I was feeling into our chat, it's like, I, I wondered, you know, I guess it's perhaps similar when someone's born with psychic abilities or shamanic gifts that's who you are. So you don't know any different, right? Mm -hmm. But I wondered for you, you know, growing up in this wilderness, do you have an understanding of how that might've made you different as a human, as a kid, or because that's just the only reality you knew, you're not really sure how it might've shaped you differently? Well, you know, I had a big awakening to that because what you know is so close to you that you don't know you know it. It's just how you are, right? It's how you've always been. But the first time I went to a ceremony 
as the medicine came on and as the you know the group dropped in i mean with absolute clarity i f- i could feel every movement of energy and what i realized is that hours and hours of being with animals what it had given me was access to what i call the second language so not the language that we saying but the language that is being conveyed in the energetic between and some of it's just body language some of it's how its people move some of it's how people hold themselves but that having spent years and years in that environment a wordless environment an environment of presence i could feel instantly what was going on in the room and i could feel every process and i could feel how to how i could interact with every process to move it along mm. so it was like this incredible light bulb moment where i suddenly realized like wait i actually know exactly how the energy is moving in here uh, and so that was how it, i started to realize how it had actually um formatted me in some ways before that it would just been like you know i would leave a bar 10 minutes before the fight broke out because i would just feel the energy change in the room and i just instinctually i would leave but i didn't really know what i knew mm-hmm. and then starting to work in ceremony i started to get more conscious about what i unconsciously did all the time wow it's so beautiful and i think maybe a little deeper into our conversation if we flow back into this area yeah how that ability has allowed you to hold a unique space for people mm-hmm. as they're healing and as you're facilitating ceremonies yourself if you feel comfortable getting into that we can but i want to stay with like you growing up in this little south african boy just running around with <laughs> snakes and lions and you know I'm sure you get asked this all the time but I can't skip over the fact that Nelson Mandela, you know, when he was released from prison after 27 27 years. 27 years he went to your family's land to recuperate, I would guess is a appropriate word to say. Yeah, so it seemed like, you know, you can imagine he went into prison as a revolutionary and a freedom fighter. and he came out as this incredible icon mm-hmm. you know this global icon and all through the time of apartheid south africa you remember ken tinley's words were partner with the land think of the animals as your kin and make sure that you bring the local people into the economy of wildlife bring them into the process and so in the middle of apartheid south africa our place landolozi was this we believed in uh everyone should participate in a free and equal south africa so as a result of that my parents were involved in that movement and a man called Enos Mabuza would come and stay with us regularly and he was part of the resistance against apartheid and so he was always with us and he was always about the philosophy of creating he used to say you must pour the cultures together and when mandela emerged and suddenly he was this global icon he was adjusting as you can imagine to the sudden like barrage you've been in a cell for 27 years now you've got just endless press and mm. political issues and south africa is in a very unstable place and so it was decided that he needed to go to a place in nature to have time to adjust and rest and recuperate and it was an incredible time for me because he would stay in this guest cottage at our family house and in the morning my i think i was 8 or 9 years old my mother would give me the tray and i would take him breakfast uh-huh. in bed and put it on the edge of his bed and then he would get up and just wearing an old kind of tracksuit he would go and walk around the garden mm. 
And to me, he was just this, you know, quiet man who was staying with us. It almost moves me to tears just picturing him oh. walking in the gardens. I could just cry. Oh, he was just, you know, free in nature with the birds. And then I would watch TV at night. We had this like crappy little black and white TV with the, you know, bunny ears on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I would watch images of his release from prison. And, you know, it was that same quiet man from the garden surrounded by hundreds and thousands of South Africans, you know, and clearly carrying, emanating so much energy. Mm-hmm. And he, to me, really is, I mean, he stayed with us on numerous occasions and there were so many things about him that were just, for one, I, I'm certain that he experienced, you know, what you would call an awakening experience in prison. I'm almost certain that he experienced that shift. Mm-hmm. His personal presence was just unbelievable. And his capacity to humanize every moment, you could see like even when he met members of the, the national party that had been the apartheid government, the architects of the oppression, when he met them, he would first inquire about and greet them by name in their own language, Afrikaans, which mm-hmm. would have been the language of the oppressor. He would inquire about individual family members and he would create a human connection first. And then only after the human connection would come this next iteration. And so he to me was the sort of the global representation of what in South Africa we call Ubuntu, which is the idea that people are not people without other people. We get to experience the deepest part of our humanity through our encounters with others. And he just held that. He held that in every moment. He humanized in every moment. And he was formidable. You know, it's not like he was, he was a formidable presence. He got everything done he wanted to get done. And there was this, I mean, I don't, I don't even feel like our story is that, you know, particularly amazing because there was this feeling in South Africa that everyone had some kind of individual story. His like personal fractal was so big that it felt like everyone had had this very personal encounter. But he stayed with us and we were blessed to have that energy on the land. And, and he said one day, actually my father took him out on a safari, out on a game drive. And they followed a female leopard and she cut down into a thicket and they followed in the Land Rover crunching along in the, you know, in sort of off road. And then she darted out of the thicket and she made a kill. She caught an impala and she turned and she pulled it up into a tree. Like in the late afternoon light, this leopard was up in a tree with an impala. And my father turned to who would be the future president of South Africa. And he said, Mr. Mandela, this you can only get in the wilds of Africa. This is a national treasure that is uniquely South African. It is a place, something that we have to offer to the world that no one else has. There was another safari track. He said, those people over there are paying $600 a night to be here. They're supporting the livelihoods of nearly you know, 200 people back at the camp who are supporting additionally another 10 people each. So that's you know, a huge impact into the community. This is what we have to offer the world and connecting people to nature in this way. And he turned to my father and he said, when I'm president, you will come and present to us on what we should do as a, as a new government. And true to his word, he put the conservation of these wild areas and the agenda of expanding wild areas central. Wow. And again, I think that's a little bit about that piece of land. It's a place that, you know, that leopard was working for the country. Yes. That, that tree was working for the country. Oh. That entire energy field was working for a, 
it's just always felt that way as if that land had a plan mm -hmm. and um, the people who were meant to come to it, come to it and it touches people's lives. And you know, it's just incredible to work with the animals in that way. Gosh, I just want to take another moment to like pay such respect to your dad and uncle and your grandma. I mean, everyone involved, but the fact that it, at such a young age, like you've already shared, your dad just felt that need to blurt out and to express and communicate so clearly, I mean, he clearly was, in my opinion, hearing something, hearing some sort of call, hearing the land, hearing the guardians of the land, hearing something mm -hmm. that made him muster that courage in the moment to speak up. Well, as my life has gone on, and you know, we, I'll tell you more about tracking too, but I believe that there is what I call the track of our own life in all of us. There is the path that is calling in all of us. and Matt, if you can, if you can recognize that path and start to follow us, it's there for all of us. And I think part of why I'm fascinated in it is that I grew up around people who seemed to just know when it was time to follow it and yeah. go for it. And like go for it, the place now is this incredible success that touches the lives of so many people that protect so many animals. But like when they started in in '69, there was nothing there. You know, you had to know inside yourself. There was no model for it. There was no like tourism industry in South Africa. You had to know inside yourself, like, I don't know why, but that's what I feel like I got to do. Yes. But it's like, I don't know why. I'm going to go do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's definitely how I, since my divine intervention and spiritual awakening moment, that is how I surrendered. And that's how I have lived my life is by that thing, that whisper, that feeling, that nudge that, yeah, it doesn't make perhaps mind sense or logical sense, but you just know. So I also want to chat about your many encounters with some of these animals. Sure. I listened to you sharing about the crocodile. Yeah. That one seemed uh, like a pretty life-changing moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the first thing that I should say is that, you know, that's, that whole environment speaks, you know, and as you develop your skills as an animal tracker and as you spend time with like brilliant Shanghai trackers that I grew up with, you get more attuned to that environment. And the more attuned you get, the safer the environment becomes. You know, literally it speaks to you. That makes sense. And so I always just caveat that like when I've had, everyone loves to hear about like the dangerous encounters that you have, but, and usually that's because I made a mistake, you know, because I wasn't tuned in. So the wild itself is, is just a place where attunement creates safety. But I did have a few encounters on the way. And now, as I've gotten older, I realize that, you know, initiation comes in many, many ways. Right. And I was offered, there's been places in my life where I was offered encounters with, with trauma so that I would know, and I hold it in this way now, I didn't at the time, so I would know that trauma can be a doorway mm -hmm. into very deep healing and deep transformation. And I will say a caveat that a main part of my intrigue to hear a, a little bit about one or two of these stories is because, as you know, my work with the animals. Yes, of so course. So I'm looking at it from yeah. like this shamanic medicine yeah. oh. perspective of like, okay, he almost got his leg taken off by a crocodile. What does that mean? No, yeah. thank you for saying that because <laughs> that's what it has become to me too. You yeah. Know? So um, the crocodile was really my first big um, initiation and actually second one, but... What happened was it was, a, it was a hot day and I had take, I'd gone down to the river with some friends and I had gone with a local Shangan tracker by the name of Solium Shongo. And 
we weren't officially guiding you know this group of people who were with us but they were friends who were with us and we got down to the edge of the river we had had a little picnic and the water was clear you know, beautiful clear water running over sand and because it was clear you know i thought we've got good visibility here and i turned and i began to walk upstream in the knee deep water Soddy walked sort of on the edge of the bank. He was walking parallel to me. And actually, the, the other folks had stayed under the tree. We were just, you know, ambling upstream a little bit. And there was a place where the bank had fallen away slightly. And so, you know, it just it dipped into a little puddle. But I felt like I still had good visibility. Mm -hmm. Of course, the thing that you know about a crocodile, if you know anything about crocodiles, is as they go underwater, you can see them, you can see them, you can see them. And then it only takes about that much water. And suddenly, you can't. You know, it's very, the between being able to see them and not see them is like an inch. Mm -hmm. And there was a place where a tree had fallen over and I sat down kind of where the bank, the sand bank fell away and the tree had fallen over. I sat down just on the edge of that into the water mm -hmm. just to cool myself down. And of course, the crocodile was where it had fallen away. And I'll tell you, the first thing you notice when a crocodile bites you is just the incredible pressure. You know, it's a, you cannot believe the force of that bite. And it bit me and it sort of went to pull me into the deeper water. And I threw my hands up and I caught onto this tree so it couldn't get me all the way in. And I began to kick my leg and shout. Solly, who was on the bank, he turned and he immediately began to make his way towards me. Crocodile went to bite me a second time and as it bit me, I kicked. And my foot went down its throat and it spat me out. I remember seeing myself from the outside of my body and I remember seeing this physical body climb, like just pull itself up mm -hmm. into the tree. And as I came out the water, the, from my knee down, my leg just sort of opened. It was mangled. And I remember seeing that I was weird. I see it from the outside. I remember seeing the blood coming out. And I got up into the branches of the tree and I kind of got through the branches of the tree and I fell onto the bank. And right at the moment that I fell onto the bank, Solly arrived at the deep section of the channel. And he saw me on the bank. He saw the state of my leg. He knew exactly what had happened. And he knew that in the deeper water between him and me was a crocodile. Mm -hmm. And he just came straight into the water. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, it still, you know, it gets me to this day because he was such a special friend. And he crossed that water, you know, just up to his waist. And he got to me on the bank. And, you know, you're vulnerable on the bank. And a crocodile, if it mm -hmm. knows it's… And they're know, fast. Yeah, if it knows it's got a chance to get you, it can be quite relentless. So he grabbed me and he pulled me up onto the second part of the bank. And when I got up there, he pulled his shirt off and I heard this voice in my head and it was my uncle's voice. And this is a side story, but when I was a little kid, my uncle would take me to the river and you would drop into the rapid and you would get washed down the rapid and he would grab you and pull you out. Mm. It was like the game we used to play. This was years before the crocodile population went up. And one time I was going down the river and he missed me. So I kind of got washed down river and eventually when he got to me, he pulled me out and I was crying and I was, I don't know, I was like nine years old or something or 10 years old or whatever it was. And he said to me, my uncle's like a, a sort of a rugged dude. He said, Hey, when you're in the bush, you never panic. Mm. If you panic, your brain turns to sponge. You never panic. Okay. You got to keep your cool. So it was like this lesson. And I, when I got up onto the bank with this mangled leg, I heard this voice in my head saying, slow down. Don't panic. Slow down. Mm -hmm. I started to slow my breathing down. Solly gave me a shirt. I did first aid on myself. We got everyone together. 
calm them down right you know we're just like trying to like hold that energy of like everything's okay because mm-hmm. they were obviously terrified now and then got into a vehicle and i managed to radio the camp and the camp managed to radio a plane and they managed to uh wow to get me to safety and you know stitch my the back of my leg back up and now all that happens is i've got this one weird club foot so the everything's intact except when you're trying to track me on the beach, you don't know which direction I'm going. And off <laughs> Almost to the like roadrunner. Yeah, <laughs> totally. You don't know where's this guy going. But I actually feel like it's a, like a nice snapshot of my personality now too. Like, is he going like stun- all the way off to the side right, here? Right, right. Oh my gosh. And I don't know. I mean, like this might not have anything to do with it, but like the, I forget how to say it, is like xerodactyl feet that the roadrunners have. And a lot of native traditions, um, it's included in my book and it made them really hard to track. Yeah. You know, so the irony that you're a tracker, but you're a little hard to track. A little hard to track, a <laughs> little ungrounded. But, very funny. But I'll tell you one other just funny thing. You know, sometimes I will be in airport security at, at JFK or I will be sitting in a restaurant in Arizona or I'll be in a ceremony in someone's living room somewhere or I'll be in a space and any space that just calls for a certain kind of resilience, you know, mm-hmm. where you just can almost shut your energy down and just do what you need to do. I can feel that crocodile out there in the river somewhere. And I'm almost certain that that crocodile is still alive. And that crocodile that my leg has been in its mouth is out there in a river on the wild eastern part of South Africa. Yeah. You know, and I feel a grateful connection to that animal that just puts so much of that resilient mm-hmm. energy into me for when I need it, you know? Wow. I really <laughs> love that because I was going to ask you what are, you know, one or two of the little medicine nuggets that you took away from that encounter. And that seems like one of them. That was certainly one. The other is, you know, how to manage my own energy. And I had another encounter with that when I was very young. And I think the space taught me this, you know, when I was maybe 12 years old, so I was hunting an impala, which an antelope um, with my father. At that time, we used to hunt for the pot. And we crawled up onto a termite mound. And I, w- I had lain down on the mound. And I took a shot and the antelope all ran and then they stopped. So my father said to me, just, just lie very still. And let's just make sure that that antelope has gone down. And we lay there for a few minutes. And then suddenly I felt this movement across my leg. And I looked down and there was a huge black mamba, which is this incredibly venomous snake. And it was crawling over the back of my legs. And I grabbed my father and I said to him, shit, dad, there's a mamba. And he looked around like, where? I said to him, it's right on us. Don't move, don't move. And from a young age, I knew that, you know, there are moments you have to have a presence Mm -hmm. to control your energy. And that was taught to me by being out there a lot. It was taught to me by other trackers. It was taught to me by my father. It was taught to me by my uncle. But that snake crawled on us for nearly three minutes and we lay dead still. And That's then it, a long time to a have a black mamba. a long time. I mean, if a you would have said time. 30 seconds. Oh, no. For three minutes, we just lay there. And then it turned and I came up, up, up my body and I thought, if it gets onto my face, that's, you know. And then it turned and it moved away from us. And my father grabbed me and he ran over the top of the mound and there was a thorn bush. And I remember he put his head down and he punched straight through this thorn bush. And when he came out the other side, he had branches sticking out of his head and he looked like he had antlers. They were thorns, you know, and he had blood coming out of his mouth because he had bitten the inside of his cheek so hard and I didn't have a scratch on me. Wow. And as another moment, you know, you got to learn, you train yourself in shamanic practices mm-hmm. to generate presence where there's fear. 
and generate presence. Uh, actually, just generating presence all through life. Mm-hmm. Learning how to monitor your own body's physiology so that you can, you know, be with a rise in energy, but be present with it too. Mm. You know, so all those little things. And, you know, if you get into a ceremony and suddenly the energy starts to peak and something very heavy starts to move, something very intense starts to move, something very dark starts to move, you know, to be able to generate the presence to hold that. Yeah. And for a person to, you know, I think in any kind of, of that sort of healing work, people can feel unconsciously what depth they can go to with you. And they can feel how much presence you can generate mm-hmm. in the face of whatever they're holding. And if they can feel that you can't, then they won't. It's almost like their psyche knows they won't go there, right? That makes total sense. Yeah. Yes. Ooh, those are some good ones. So yeah, those were those were encounters. And I mean, I had more recently, I had one which is, which is a whole different story, but it's it was probably the closest to death I've ever come. Oh, really? Yeah, but it it involved a swarm of bees more than anything. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, I don't know if we want to get into that now or if we want to keep it moving. I mean, <laughs> I I would be open because, you know, there are, I, and we will get into the tracking, and I mean, there's a lot of things I want to cover with you, but it's not every interview where I can go like so animal-focused with yeah, someone. Sure. You know, so if you're open to sharing the, about the bees. Sure. I mean, this was like, I've actually come to think that this might be my closest encounter. And people say to you, what's the most dangerous thing? And I've tracked, you know, hours and hours and hours tracking lions. Right. Which we'll get into, but, you know, what's the most scary thing that's ever happened to you? Honestly, I would say it might be bees. Well, I actually love that because just the one little silly thread that I'll toss in when I guide, you know, shamanic journeys for people to unite with their power animal guides and whatnot. And not that this happens all the time, but, you know, you'll you'll definitely hear people like, oh, you know, kind of bummed that they met uh, a firefly or a crab or something. And I'm like, never underestimate oh my God. the power of any creature. I mean, that is really the way to say it. So... I became fascinated by bees, as I think many people in the consciousness space do, because it's the social insect. You know, they pollinate thousands of flowers. They can read electromagnetic fields. They generate a negative charge on them. So when they land on a flower, a flower basically spits positive pollen onto their body. When you start getting into swarm theory, it's just incredible. Like every individual bee reacts to local stimuli. And when enough individual bees react to local knowing what they know to do somehow and they do these you know these dances somehow it activates an algorithm and the algorithm fires through the entire swarm of 70 to 80,000 bees and mm. suddenly they all move as one yeah and you'll see videos of that where it's just like this amoeba in the air yeah so it's just and and I'm fascinated by that idea like individual knowing resulting in you know collective transformation so mm. I was fascinated by this and so I asked a local beekeeper to take me to his hive, and his name was Simon Sambo. And Simon had a very beautiful, honey-like voice. I said to him, <laughs> Simon, would you take me beekeeping? He said, absolutely, I can take you beekeeping anytime. So I had been working out, and I said to him, Simon, can we go? I said, yes, let's go to the hives now. So we go out to the hives. And this is on his land? This is on our land, where, oh, we, where, land? where we had a hive. Oh, he, had, he had two hives himself. Oh, okay. So he's got this like black crate and he opens it and he says, uh, first things first, you must put on your beekeeping suit. So he gives me the beekeeping suit. And when I put it on, it's a little short for me. Like it's a little short on the ankles. Mm-hmm. 
So I said to him, Simon, the suits are a bit short for me. He said, oh, don't worry. I will give you my socks. <laughs> so he takes his socks off and he <laughs> gives them to me. And I'm like, okay, we good. And, and then I said to him, uh, should we get the smoker going? He's like, uh, no, I do not use the smoker because it scares the bees. They think a fire is coming. Mm. And that should have been my, like, my warning sign. I was like, but every beekeeper in the world uses a smoker. So we start to walk out to the bees and he's got this like thing, like a crowbar that you take the lid off with. And Alison, it's incredible. They, they, it's like they can feel your intention. Mm. So if you just walk by, you're good. But if you walk at their hive with the desire to like mess with them, you, they feel it. And as you get close, they start to come out. And these are African bees. These mm. are, you know, this is like a wild bees. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that you become aware of is this incredible like change in octave. And then you get near and he opens the lid and 70,000 of the most insanely angry bees come out. And it's like this vibratory field around you. And you can feel that they are not happy with you because you're messing with them. Mm. So you can feel this, like it's like a collective energy of like, you're messing with us. We are going to mess with you back. Wah! And they start to land on you. And there's just this like intensive energy. Wah! And you can feel like, it's like, I, I don't think they're angry, but they're like amped up. Right. And it's loud and they're all around you. I'm like, Simon, some of these bees are quite intense. He's like, oh, we'll be okay. Wah! And then, one stung me through my sock. Mm. And as they discovered the weakness, like 70,000 bees froze in the air for a moment. And then as one, they went to my ankles. And they started to sting me. I was like, Simon, Simon, they're starting to sting me. And now I'm trying to, you know, maintain my shamanic cool, maintain my shamanic cool. They're starting to sting me. They're starting to sting me. Simon, what do I do? And he goes, run for your life. <laughs> so, we, so we run out into the clearing and he starts beating me with a branch to get the... So I'm standing there in a hazmat suit in the suit getting like beaten with a branch. And then I'm like, Simon, they're still singing. He's like, I will get the smoker. And he starts smoking me. He has to get elephant dung and get it going. And then eventually I was like, they're still stinging me. He's like, just run for it. And so we ran to the Land Rover. This is so intense. <laughs> we ran to the Land Rover and we drove away, the two of us, in our beekeeping suits. And we came around the corner and he's still screaming, run for your life, run for your life. And another vehicle came past us. And they just saw these two guys in like <laughs> beekeeping suits with one going, run for your life. Oh my God. So it was just like this ridiculous experience. Oh. But like what I got out of it, well, firstly, like I didn't walk for a few days. I just had these like sausage feet. But what I got out of it was like, do not, do not underestimate the bees. Mm -hmm. Do not ever like approach, oh, I like to learn from the bees. There's intensity in the collective. And do not underestimate the ferocity of focus that can happen when the collective shifts its focus onto something. Mm. Um, I, I, it's almost like I felt the power of that. I see. That's interesting. And for some time now, I felt like, you know, the bees also hold this, a deeper message for us of... Um, if each one of us can get attuned to that thing we know to do, we can move this algorithm of the collective. Mm -hmm. And then enough of us just starting to get really tuned into that, you know, what you call the voice inside you or what I call the track of your life. Like you never know when this whole thing might move into, mm -hmm. into a different way of living, into a different ways of, you know, being connected with nature. So these have been my teachers, you know. And, I, and, and I don't say that stuff lightly. I think that we live in like very difficult times. 
but I do not think all of the models for human destruction and the, the, the weight of what we're dealing with right now, I don't think they account for a collective awakening mm -hmm. and what could happen in a collective awakening. And if the bees showed me anything, they showed me there is immense power in that collective and anything's possible if we fire that algorithm together. Yeah. Let's sit with that for a second. <laughs> Hey, Soul Fam, I want to take a moment to thank an incredible flower essence and flower elixir company called Lotus Way for making today's episode possible. As a shaman, I'm very tapped into and very much know the healing power of nature and the medicine and healing powers that come from certain energetics. And Lotus Way collects by hand their flower essences from wild and special gardens from the wild and special gardens from all over the world. They have various products in their line, everything from aura mist to anointing oils to bath salts. But what I've been focusing on taking lately are their flower elixirs. I take them every day. And these are flower tonics that you take sublingually underneath your tongue and they work through your acupuncture meridians. It's a liquid infusion of a flower or plant's chi or life force. And they have a powerful range of different elixirs to pick from. What I have been using are the Wild Abundance Elixir, and that's for prosperity, divine beauty, magic in everyday life, the Night Blooming Serious Elixir for big leaps and fearlessness, and the last one I've been diving into heavy is the Expansive Presence Elixir, and that's for power of receptivity, luminescent expression, and divine nourishment. And I can truly say that I've been experiencing this inexplicable support. I'm feeling it from the inside of myself. That's the best way that I, I can explain it. One little example, I was going through quite a tough experience last week. And it's one that I think the vast majority of the population, if they had gone through it, they would have also deemed it pretty challenging. But what I witnessed in myself was that I was able to move through that challenging experience with much greater strength and quickness and ease and grace while also holding a space of love. And I truly feel my new Elixir friends played a big role in this inner divine support. And you guys know I only share about products and brands that I truly believe in that have made a meaningful impact on my life. So I'm so excited to share Lotus Way with you. Perhaps you want to give some of these awesome products as a supportive gift to someone you love. So just head to www.lotusway.com. That's www.lotusway.com. And you can use the code mystic, M-Y-S-T-I-C. Use code mystic at checkout for 15% off. And the founder of Lotus Way, Katie, is a truly lovely soul who I can tell is definitely in her calling with this work. So don't forget to use code MYSTIC to get your 15% off. I can't wait to hear about what you decided to try. Tag me on Instagram. Let me know which one spoke to you the most and how much you're loving them. Got it. That's why I love those stories so much. I think the last little animal that I would love to talk about because I literally was sitting at my computer yesterday sobbing and sobbing was Elvis. 
the little elephant. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, that little sweetie heart. And the story of how the herd, how you guys started to realize that they were moving slower to accommodate Mm -hmm. her disability with her joints and her leg Mm -hmm. or however exactly the disability was. But what a little sweetie. Can you share a little bit about her? Sure. For him? uh, I think he was a young male. Yeah. Elvis was... It was an elephant that we that we got to know on the reserve. It was a young elephant that would come in with the herds that came in from Kruger National Park to feed up the river in the winter months. And Elvis had these two very badly damaged, well, not damaged, but a birth defect. And the hind legs moved at the same time. So he would essentially crawl and then like crawl the front legs forward and then pull the back legs. Yeah. And it made this very distinctive track. And so actually, if you could be out and you found the herds of, an e- of the tracks of a herd of elephants, you would see, oh, Elvis has been here because you saw this distinctive mark Aww. on the ground. And we thought Elvis would, you know, when you, the wild is efficient. And we thought that, you know, with this challenge, you know, if we saw Elvis once, that would be a lot. But over the next five or six years, every winter, this, this young elephant would appear. Mm. And... The trackers who watched elephant herds move regularly became aware that, in fact, the herd that Elvis belonged to moved more slowly so that he could keep up. And often when the herd went down into the river to drink, down the bank to drink, and then they would turn and they would walk back up the bank, one of the young teenage elephants or even sometimes Elvis's uh, biological mother would come behind him and shove him up the hill. And it became very clear to us that that herd was, in fact, in some way taking care of that young elephant. So beautiful. I literally was just <laughs> yeah. crying and crying. I mean, it happened within a second of seeing little Elvis and then the stories I went with. Right. I was like, oh, forget about it. Like, oh, that beautiful little soul. Do you think Elvis is still alive? Or? No, not anymore. Yeah. But, you know, that it was profound and it's what we see, you know, taking people out there now, running retreats every year and also just you know, my years as a safari guide, when people slowed down enough and actually looked into the natural world, they just started seeing miraculous things. They started to see our own nature mm. reflected there in front of us. They started to see beauty and the primal and the intelligence of nature, you know, the, the wisdom running through nature, yeah. the, the way that if you watch it closely, you start to see a series of interlocking intelligences mm-hmm. that all touch each other. And then if you sit more closely and spend more time with it, you realize not only is this whole thing is intelligent, but I'm a part of that intelligence. And it's not, it's an unmissable state of being once you spend more time in it. It's like there is such a wisdom. There is a pattern of movement here. There is a, there's just so much intelligence and I am that. Yeah. And I think that's why all through time, you know, Anyone who's been interested in spirituality has been drawn to nature. Yeah, it was really the go-to place that I was just, the track of my life led me to after my big divine intervention when everything, my world got turned upside down, veil lifted, egoic shell obliterated, and I was like, uh, everything's (laughs) different. I just, even though I was living in Brooklyn, I just was so compelled every single day I had to walk to the closest park and mm-hmm. I had to get as immersed in nature as I could. And that was my saving grace. And that was the intelligence mm-hmm. that, and and the animal guides were the first guides that presented to me, my core power animal, the black panther, but then three additional guides, the frog, the bear, and the deer. 
I had those four just like beautiful holding me in all those different ways, teaching me in all those different ways. The deer were just reminding me to keep my heart open. And yeah, but nature was my saving grace as I was going through that reconfiguring mm -hmm. time. So I'm curious for you, you know, you grow up, you were born into this land and grew up on this land. Was there ever a time in your life where you questioned if you wanted to be a steward of it, if you wanted, I know you travel a lot, but like mm -hmm. that's your home. Yeah. Was there a time where you weren't so sure that you wanted that life or was it always just so clear? You know, I think that what happened was, is that my own healing journey kind of became a part of that process. And so, you know, what happened was I went to a boarding school when I was 10 and it was an incredibly traumatic experience to be pulled from that land mm. and put into the school that was, you know, I remember just little things like being locked into a dormitory, being locked in. And it was a very cold environment. It was not a warm environment. And I felt very fractured by that experience in some ways. I felt disconnected from the energy of the land and in this cold boarding house with, it was just, it was a bad experience. It was a very traumatic experience. And was then, that school also somewhere in South Africa? That was also in South Africa. And then I had another experience where I was, it was, I had an encounter with violent crime when I was about 19 years old. And I had some pretty severe PTSD from that. And then I had got bitten by the crocodile just after that. And so mm. I, I, a few things had happened. And so by the time I was 23 or so, I had gone into a period where I had become severely numb. And, you know, on the back end of the physical trauma of a very deep trauma involving this violent crime situation, I was just totally frozen. And, you know, at the same time, I was working as a safari guide, but, you know, I didn't feel like my life path was to be a safari guide, although I love being in nature. So that, that was bumping into it a little bit there. Mm -hmm. And it was at that moment that I met a woman who came on safari. And it was actually one of those profoundly transformative encounters. And what happened is another safari guide, a buddy of mine, said, there's this woman coming. I took her on safari a year ago and she's really interesting. She's a martial artist and she seems, she just seems really interesting. I think you'd like her. So I went into the guide room and in the guide room, there was a big board where your name got allocated to who you would take out on safari. And I rubbed someone else's name <laughs> off the board and I put my name uh -huh. with her. And she was this incredible healer called Martha Beck. Oh, and okay. yeah, and so she arrived, and I was her guide. Hi, I'm Boyd. I'll be your safari guide. I got my rifle, I got my safari truck, and I took her out. And we were driving along the one day, and she said to me, you "No, know, she's sitting somewhere near the front of the vehicle." And she said, "The restoration of the planet will come out of a profound shift in human consciousness." And it was like one of those sentences. I nearly like drove the safari truck off the road. I just, some, I felt something in me say. Whatever that you just said, that's something to do with my life. And then, then we drove back to the camp and we'd been out seeing animals and you know, I'd trying to be a professional guide and maintain professional boundaries. And we got to the car park of the camp and we got out and she turned and she looked at me and she just, you know, she had this incredible presence and she still has this incredible presence. She said, uh, you know, I can see what you're carrying and I'm here for you. And, and you know, when someone sees you like that, I was like, what do you mean? She said, I can see what you've been, you've been through something and, I, and I'm here for you. Mm. And just being seen like that, it totally like just broke me open. Yeah. And I started like having a bit of a cry 
and you know she's holding me and I've got my rifle and <laughs> and she became my first real mentor and she basically just helped me map my own healing and move me through my own healing and then she showed me how that art form works and of course you know one of the most powerful ways to heal our trauma is to find our gifts and share them and so I just felt like she just helped me discover what I had to offer and slowly that started to evolve my path and I knew that my path was about nature my path was about healing my path was about this transformation of consciousness that I think we're in my path was about helping people move through what had created blockages in their life and so as that started to happen you know I started to get more solid in like what I wanted to do in mm -hmm. the world and I started to realize that you know on a personal level like running a safari operation was never going to be my calling but I could use this incredible space and evolve it in new ways. And so it really, she helped me discover my path as a healer. She helped me discover what I would like to offer as the next generation on that piece of land. She helped me move through all my, you know, my shit. So it was just like, she really put me on the path and it just, it continues to give so much. Wow, you know? that's so powerful. I love that. I had no idea about that story, but I did see that she, you guys are hosting a retreat together at some point. Yeah, we still, we still host, uh, we, you know, COVID obviously, but usually once a year we do something together. But I had no idea the backstory, the connection yeah. there. That's yeah, so she, cool. And she also connected me with the shamanic eventually, mm. you know. So it was like this, I mean, she just came into my life and just offered so many gifts. Wow. And I think I would have wrestled like, what is my part in this generational story? What am I going to do on this land? But, you know, my sister and I run six weeks of, of healing retreats there a year. And the whole philosophy of the camp has changed to being a place that connects people with nature. And so I just feel like out of my own work and my own journey, it's just offering kind of the next chapters for us. Oh my gosh, so beautiful. Yeah. And speaking of offerings, I would love if you could just give one example. I'm really big on any new land that I enter into, you know, I'm, you know, speaking to the love and light guardians and putting my ear to the earth and communicating. And I bring, you know, I'll tune in before I go on the trip and what offerings I, that the land would like me to bring, whether it's rose petals or whatever. And so I love land conversations and connections what is one example of something that you do yourself personally, just between you and the land, or when a group comes in where you help people remember these sacred practices in terms of like offerings and things like that? Yeah, I think that there are a few things. You know, one of the things that I say to people is you have to realize now as you come into the space, you're going to go out into this environment. It's an energy field, it's a sentient energy field. And it will interact with your consciousness if you intentionalize that desire. So remember to ask it to teach you. Mm. Remember to ask it. Set that intention. Show me. And then as you go through the afternoon, watch for what really affects you. You'll see a specific tree. You will see a, it's like, a, it's like symbols in a dream. You will see a specific animal that will affect you. And then you will start to, and then we can use a practice to start to work out what that animal's message for you is. Right. But like, that's the key is like really remembering to ask. And um, I would say that, you know, nature is one of the things that I've heard Eckhart Tolle say, which I really love is in the moment, a human being that has self-awareness 
puts awareness onto, for example, a tree, for a moment it experiences itself as a tree. Mm -hmm. it, it gets to ex human consciousness allows nature to experience itself in some ways. Otherwise, it's always just in a state of oneness. But for a moment, it becomes self-aware of itself as human consciousness interacts with it. Yes. So I, I would say just remember to ask for messages. Remember to intentionalize every moment. I love that. And before I move officially past some animal-specific stuff, can we just give a shout out the Elon antelope, how incredible they are? Oh my gosh. I'm obsessed with them. They're like wizards. Yeah. I'll tell you, my best encounter I ever had with an eland was... I was reading a book about synchronicity. Uh -huh. And as I was reading the book about synchronicity, we were sitting on a sand dune in the Kalahari Desert. A branch in the fire broke and there was a scorpion on the edge of the branch. As the branch broke, I saw the scorpion and the, and the, um, the sparks went up and right above me in the sky was the tail of Scorpio. Wow. I was just I'm reading Jung by firelight in this huge you know, ancient desert. And the next morning I woke up and Elant was running down the ravine between dunes. And it ran all the way down the ravine. And as it got parallel to me, I felt the wind touch my back. And my scent went down into the gully below the dune. And the Elant ran into it and turned and looked at me. <laughs> and, it like, and it turned and it looked directly at me. Yes. And I felt that moment of like connection. And, and again, that feeling that everything was alive for a moment. Oh my gosh. I, yes, that, I feel like that's the perfect story to share with them. I have been blessed to get in pretty darn, like actually really close proximity um, on some sacred lands in Mexico. This beautiful family who owns it, family, friends, as a present to them, uh, getting the land many years ago, they sent over zebra and Elon and things. And that was their, I, love it. I know, I know. So great. And, um, so yeah, I was able to spend uh, quite a lot of time with them on different occasions and I'm just in awe of yeah. them. They're just wizards. Yeah. And you know, the Bushmen who live in the Kalahari just have incredible mythologies about uh. the presence of that, that antelope and the scope of it and its connection to the stars. And you'll see an old Bushman paintings on rock faces, you always see the presence of that that animal, yeah. Because, yeah, when they look at you, it's a different look yeah. than you get from any other living being. Yeah. At least that's been my experience. It's like they're piercing through your soul, and I'm just, you can lock in with them so quickly and deeply. Yeah, they're amazing. Absolutely <sighs> amazing. Oh my gosh. Brief segue to make sure that the Elon got his shout out. Yeah, yeah totally. I, yeah. I was like, okay, I have to yeah, <laughs> give shouts to them. This was funny. I read an article, I think it was a journalist who had come to visit you. She described you as Indiana Jones mixed with Ralph Lauren model. Oh, Do you remember that? Oh my God. I'm sure you loved that one. I mean, just post that somewhere, you know? No. <laughs> so funny. But I, I mean, it was, I thought, huh, you know, it's pretty accurate description. You know, you're, you know, this young smart, handsome guy who, you know, you're rocking the safari gear. And it got me thinking, I moved beyond her description to thinking specifically about the safari gear or like the clothes that you wear when you live on land like you do. And is there anything that gets evoked when you put that specific kind of clothing on or are you just so used to it that it's just like, whatever? I would feel like if I... <sighs> Or some of the Londa Lozy gear, I would be like, I don't know, I'd feel like a badass or something. I mean, there's there's definitely that. I mean, there's the whole, you know, the in the safari game, there's what they call khaki fever. You know, we, we would say khaki, you would say khaki, khaki right? Khaki, yes. yeah. yeah. Khaki fever, it's like, you know, the falling in love with the guide with his rifle. With his, <laughs> right. you know, 
And, you know, I just knew as a kid, like my uncle used to say to me, like, you got to blend in. You got to be attuned. You can't be wearing gear that makes you stand out. So to, to me, it was more like a, just about being attuned, wearing clothes that allowed you to track well, allowed you to blend in well. Okay. I mean, what I would say about it is there's that level of it and it's fun, you know, the, the whole like safari guide thing. But any guide who spends a lot of time out there, what it just keeps infusing you with is like incredible humility, mm. you know, the feeling that, and actually like, if you want to play the bravado game, uh, you're probably going to get a wake up call at some point. Yeah. And, you know, anyone who plays that game long enough eventually gets it wrong. That environment, it's, a, it's actually about sensitivity. It's about mm -hmm. awareness. And it's about, and if you have that, if you're actually attuning to it, not trying to be, stand out in it, oh man, it talks to you. Mm -hmm. And that's actually much more valuable to me. And as I've, I probably did that a bit back in the day, you know, I'm, you know, guilty of that at some point in my life. But as my journey has changed, I think my, my relationship with it has gone to a different place. Beautiful. Yeah. Love it. Uh, so let's dive in now with the 40 days that you decided to live in a treehouse on the land. I'm sure, well, I know you covered it because you recorded like a, a journal entry each day of that experience so people can dive into that. So we don't need to spend a lot of time here, but I am just curious. It is a pretty unique thing to be able to do in your lifetime. And when the COVID situation happened, it felt like it opened up that gateway for you. And yeah was the time to do that. So what was one of the biggest teachings that came out of that time being alone? I mean, there was, there, I mean, there was so many. You know, I went to answer a question, you know, why did, why do, in every awakening, why did the mystics go to nature? There's 40,000 accounts in every text you can imagine. At a certain point, everyone goes to be alone in nature. And so I wanted to like experience that from the inside and you know, suddenly my year canceled and, you know, it, all the retreats were gone and it was just time. And it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. So that's kind of the context. You know, I learned so many things in that tree. And I would say I was reconnected with simplicity mm. in a really deep way. I saw personalization to the intelligence of nature. You know, like it wasn't like you went out and it was, oh, there's an antelope. No, it's, or, or there's, there's a bird. It was like living out there all the time. It was like, no, it's that bird that lives between here and roosts in that tree over there and flies down the southern bank of the river every day and flies back up the northern bank and looks for grubs in this tree and forages on the ground here. Mm. It personalized every encounter with the animals. And what I started to see is patterns of movement and very intelligent, intricate patterns of movement. And so as I became more aware of the personal movement of the animals around me, I felt in some ways more personally connected to it. I saw a reverence in it. Uh, and I think part of that too was that I slowed down enough to be able to, one of the things that I learned was reverence can't happen at high speed. Like reverence has to occur when you actually slow down to experience it. And I started to not, as I said earlier, like I started to see patterns of intelligence and I started to see a great intelligence flowing through all of that. And, you know, after 30 days, I could not deny that I too am a part of that. Mm. And, and that to me was the biggest thing is like, we are a part, this thing is intelligent, it's intricate, and we are fundamentally a part of it. You know, one of the, I mean, this is a bit of a segue, but it's coming to me now, so I'll just say it. Like, yeah. One of my first big medicine experiences 
know, I was in so much pain over the state of the natural world, in so much pain. And the way that the experience went is, you know, this imagery would open up and it would just be like this incredible jungle. And it would just go, this mist hanging over the jungle. And then this voice would say in my ear, look how old I am. And then this mountain peak, look how old I am. And it just went on like that for hours. Just like the depth of the ocean. Look how old I am. And the reason I bring it up is that what I experienced out there living in that tree was that the wisdom of the natural world, it is so ancient. Yeah. It is so beyond a conception of time that we can even begin to come to. And we are intricately connected to it, but we're, you know, we're a clearing in the forest. You know, there's no need to feel pain over this because it is intelligent. And if we get out of balance, it will correct us. And um, I don't know, there was a big letting go of that in, in many ways. Like I felt like I can let go in my own life yeah. because I'm going to end up where I need to end up. You know, like there's no ways I could plan to be in this room with you today, right. but, but here I am. And so I can let go into that. I can let go into knowing that nature's got this. I can let go into a higher wisdom at every turn. And that's, and I don't always do it, right? But I'm trying to continually slow down enough to remember to let go into, the, into some other intelligence. Yeah, so true. And I feel like that perfectly segues into explaining little, a little bit more about what a tracker is, what mm -hmm. a tracker does. And I love on your website, it says trackers go their own way. And this one just you know, took me down to the ground, this next line. Oh God, I can hardly say it. Oh, okay. Cause it just resonated to like the chorus core of the depths of my being. It, it says trackers, their authority is to their own integrity. I mean that those few words, whew, and the way of the tracker is for the people who want to make their own path under their own guidance. Mm -hmm. I mean, wow, I did not realize I've never, I don't think I've ever had an experience with the tracker. So to me, I was curious myself. I was like, oh, this is, you know, some new territory for mm -hmm. me to cover. But when I read that definition, I was like, oh, I do know this. Yeah. This is the shaman's way, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, sure, as much as you feel called to. I mean, okay, so there are multiple layers to it. The first is that, you know, I grew up with the Shangan trackers. And I think the Shangan trackers, because they, they're storytellers by nature. They have an incredible imagination. Their whole culture is storytelling and noticing and observing and, and uh, imitating. And some of that, how they are with each other, makes them incredible trackers. So I grew up around probably some of the best trackers in the world. And what they were able to do was follow the faint trails of an animal for hours and hours and hours across a landscape and eventually find that animal. And, and they worked in the safari business to find animals, and then you would know where animals were so you could call in safari vehicles so people could come and see animals. Okay. So kind of like level one of it was like working on the ground to follow these trails. And that was my first experience with it was learning to do that. Then later in my life, when I started my own healing journey, I started to watch the trackers and as I was healing and as I was working out how to be in a transformational process, I started to see that the skill and the mindset and the approach of a tracker 
was full of everything you needed to be inside of a transformational process. And so this ancient art form that I grew up with that had meant one thing to me, finding animals, started to show me that you could apply it in other places in your life. And I started to see the mentality and the approach of the tracker through a totally different frame. So that was kind of level two. And what do I mean by that? Well, for example, trackers, the first movement of any kind of like tracking of an animal is you have to begin following without knowing where it's going. Right. So the first well, movement oh. is like, I got <laughs> I gotta go without knowing, you know, and trackers condition themselves to live with tremendous unknowns and be comfortable with the unknown. And, you know, I've coached now many, many people. And of course, what do they say to you? They say like, well, when I know what the next thing is, I'll make the move. And I say, you know, the, usually what this is going to involve is you starting to take steps without knowing, letting yourself not know. And we grow up in a culture that tells us you have to know at every turn, right? From, from the time you're in school. But the tracker's whole movement is to begin without knowing, mm -hmm. to set off there into the unknown without knowing. Then what do you need as a tracker? Well, you're going to have to develop what we call track awareness. So, you know, if you and I walk down a path together out in the wild, I'm going to see, because I've done it more than you, I've, taught, I've given myself more training, I'm going to see 50 or 60% more information there mm -hmm. than you. So that's because I've attuned myself. So all of us have to develop track awareness in our own way. God, yeah, it's so true. It's just like it's literally like hearing myself when I share about the shamanic path, right? the hero's journey, yeah. the spiritual way. It's Yeah, and so like when you went through your awakening, for a period afterwards, you were like, well, I'm not that anymore. Right. Uh, what's my new path? But you have to start to teach yourself to see it. Yes. And so there'll be certain people that, that you feel like, yes, there'll be certain things that you're drawn to. There'll be images. So you're teaching yourself to see like what gives you more life, what expands you. And then the more you walk on it, you, you, you just become at one with the you, thing. There's no delineation. You're not, you're not trying. Yeah. Once you've given yourself track awareness, and what's amazing is that in many, many transformational processes, I've seen if you say to someone, okay, don't know, but start tuning in to what enlivens you. They will start to pick it in their life. Wherever they are, they'll start to see what's calling them forward. Mm -hmm. They will develop their own track awareness. It's like we know how to do it, but it requires attention. you got to slow down. You can't be super distracted. You have to be paying attention. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, those are two. But, and if we were tracking a lion out in the wild, like one of the things that I would watch my teacher do is he would work with what I would call a first track and then a next first track, and then a next first track. And he used to say to me, I don't know where I'm going, but I know exactly how to get there. Mm. The first track, and then the next first track, and then the next first track. And in an infinite wilderness, where a lion could have gone anywhere, he would stay on it by staying on the first track, and then the next first track, and then the next first track. And he would dial down all of those possibilities into one moment of presence, and then one moment of presence. And all he needed was the next track. Right. And so usually as we start these journeys, we don't actually know what the end is. We just know something we can do today and then something we can do today that feels a little better. Something. So that's you know, some examples of how tracking started to change for me. And, and then if you spend time, and I mean, I could go on all through transformational processes as a tracker, what you'll need, um, you're going to lose the track, for example, 100%. If you go out there to track a lion, at some stage you will lose the track. What does a tracker do when they lose the track? 
equipment, if you watch great trackers, they'll go back to where they last had a clear track. Mm. So you might ask yourself, like, where in my life do I know I was last absolutely on track? And the other thing that they do is they start trying things. They just walk up ahead. They test any open ground. They're not frozen by the need to know what's happened, where's it gone, I've lost it. I just test up ahead here. Test that patch. Look up there. Anywhere where you don't find a track, they call that the path of not here. It's helping you refine actually where, <laughs> where it was. That's so good. So I started to see tracking through transformational processes and I started to realize that I had inside of me as a tracker the tools I needed to navigate transformational processes. And then I also started to look at a tracker, the archetype. You know, the archetype of the tracker. Well, well, what is the tracker most true to? Well, they're most true to the track of their own life. And actually, if you hang out with trackers, they don't take instruction. Like mm. the great trackers are, are wild. Yeah. They're rogue. They're wild to that thing inside of them. Yes. They're artists. They're real artists. The artistry that it takes to navigate unknown terrain, dangerous situations, attuned to faint yeah. uh, signs. A tracker is an artist. And the trust in it all. A tracker is filled with the capacity to be in process. Mm-hmm. You know, they are so in that dynamic of just, I'm here in this process. I'm playing on this track. Whether we find the animal or not, I'm working in my art form right here, following, following, mm-hmm. following. And that, and you know, that old thing of being willing to be in process starts to generate outcomes. They're not obsessed with the outcome and just wanting to get to the outcome. They're just in the process, in the process. I, it speaks to me very much. <laughs> so, I understand it very much. And so with that, if this is really speaking to someone and they're like, I want to come to your lands and I want to track, I, I think I saw that very rare, like once a year, you have very small, intimate group that can do these specific tracking retreats. Is that mm-hmm. still accurate? Or Yeah, so we do various retreats, usually through the winter months. But also, if people want to come, you know, they just get a hold of us and let us know what they're interested in. Mm. And so there's a few, there's a, you know, and actually just being in that environment is, is really strong. Actually, in groups, people are putting together groups now and saying, we want to come specifically for tracking. And we want to come specifically to, to, you know, be involved in a more intentional encounter with nature. And so my sister and I are doing that all the time now. Oh, wow. It's so neat. I definitely hope to experience the land. Well, I think you've got to get out there. You know, I mean, I just, I just think it will really speak to you to be in the presence of wild animals. You know, that's the thing. They're totally wild. Right. And they are allowing us into their world. And, you know, uh, one of the things that Martha taught me early on was that the animal realm is a wordless dimension. So there's no verbal mind there. You don't look at the animals seeing them thinking like, oh, I hope I'll catch some game tomorrow. Or I hope, you know, they are just always in a state of presence. And as you go into that energy field, they start to pull you out of your own verbal mind and they start to pull you into wordlessness, into that empty, open state of presence. And as you start to go into wordlessness, you almost immediately start to feel oneness, you know? And, um, it's just such good medicine and I feel like I actually have come to feel like people who are really working to serve this awakening, this transformation in human consciousness, it's a place that is there for them now to support and almost fill them up with energy and medicine. Mm. I strongly feel that anyone is doing transformational work can come there and get filled up with, with the beauty of that relationship with nature there. 
That makes total sense, being the motherland and just everything, all the cultivation and uh, healing layers of work that you shared at the top of the interview that went into shaping the land the way it is now. And we should note that it is very much unlike the three mud huts that it started at. It's now a very beautiful... <laughs> yeah, it's come a long way over the years. You know, there, there are a few camps now and at, at sort of different levels, but it's it's very, very comfortable and there's running water, et cetera, now, and it's actually really beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And, you know, we're getting to the, the tail end portion, but another thing that really struck me that I wanted to at least touch upon is the concept of village and mm -hmm. it being specifically within your company. I mm -hmm. thought, oh, what a great way, because I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs, especially specifically spiritual entrepreneurs, listen to this podcast and it describes, it says, villages can be built in companies as well as communities. To create a village in your business is to stand for more than your product. It is to be contributing to a vast restoration. And I loved this. And it is to attract top caliber village builders into your company. And I just love that perspective and framework. So if there's anything coming up for you that you can touch on with that idea. Well, I think that idea is an idea that... It you know, really broad right now. I don't know if you ever heard the the myth of Shambhala. You know, there's this ancient Tibetan myth that there exists this land of Shambhala. Shambhala is a place in the mystical realms of the Himalayas. Some people say it's a real place. Some people say it's a place in imagination where the ancient wisdom of humanity is kept. And Shambhala will be rediscovered uh, when people most need that information. It's this old uh, Tibetan text and and the Dalai Lama has said of Shambhala that most likely Shambhala begins as an outer journey, a quest to a place outside, but ends in an inner discovery of a world inside of us. So what I would say about the village now is, I believe that we are in a transformation in consciousness. And I think that many, many individuals are waking up to a calling, this track of your life, this calling inside themselves. And... When many of us follow that calling, we start to activate what I call the village consciousness, which is actually a place inside each one of us, a state of consciousness that is starting to bubble up all over the world. And what it is, is it's an understanding that this modern culture that we're in does not offer a truly meaningful way of living. Mm -hmm. And the activism of the modern day is for each one of us to get in touch with that track inside of us, that calling inside of us and live it into life, and actually make up a different way of living again, a different state of being. And so the village consciousness is alive inside of each one of us. And it requires that we go wild again. It requires that we find our gifts and share them. It requires that we start to inhabit a state of abundance. You know, And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is a feeling of enough. I am enough. I have enough so that we don't need to constantly reach outside of ourselves for things. It mm -hmm. asks us to reactivate our personal creativity. It asks us to share our gifts. So that's my take on the village now. Each one of us, I feel, has an opportunity to awaken the village consciousness. And you awaken it in your own life by creating a relational field around you. You awaken it in your business. You awaken it in your workplace. You awaken it everywhere. And I think when, a, when enough of us activate that village consciousness around us, you know, something amazing can start to happen around us. And I think that's a little bit of what's happening here in Austin. You're really feeling that consciousness waking up. Like, 
people just know the way that we've been doing it for the last hundred years since the industrial era is not working. It's taking us in the wrong direction, but there's no model for a different way of doing it. And so it comes out of individual originality. And maybe I'm being a bit abstract, but you know, you could never have gone to college to do the job that you do now. What wakes you up in the morning, what you, the way that you show up in the world, the way that you serve, there was, you couldn't go and study that. There was right. no model. You have gone into yourself. You've touched a place that is very essential. And you've said, I'm going to work out how to let this come through me. And I think that a lot of people starting to do that will make different ways of living. And that's what we need right now. We need different ways of living that are more connected, that are more in tune. And so that's my take on the village right now. It's a, it's a state of consciousness that each one of us can activate. Yeah, I love it. And it, it is interesting, this call to Austin that Luke and I unexpectedly heard. And here we are, we, we heeded the call, but so many others and then amongst the community that all got the sonar beeping, whatever <laughs> thing was bringing us in here, signaling us. There are so many additional conversations specifically around like buying huge plots of land and building communities together. And I, you know, if you had asked me 10, 20 years ago, I, I don't think I would have guessed that at some point in my life, this lifetime, I would have been having those kinds of serious conversations and maybe getting a plot within that yeah. land and living with a bunch of other people. But at this point in my life, I'm like, that actually sounds great. Raise my kids. If, I, if I'm if i able to, you know, I'm blessed to have kids, have them grow up in that kind of atmosphere. We know that the isolation that modern life creates, and here's why it creates isolation, because it's important to know this, structured into a consumer culture is a constant state of comparison. And so the way to work out, how am I doing in life? Am I successful? Am I doing okay? Is to compare yourself, mm. often based on material hierarchies. And the feeling of that, it leaves so many people with a feeling that, you know, either you achieve the ideals it presents you with, and you realize, well, that's actually not what's important. Or you never quite achieve it, and you end up feeling like there's just something wrong with me. Yeah. So many people live with that feeling of like, I'm just not quite where I should be or how. And we have to remedy by that by, by creating spaces of wholeness, you know, where people can be, where people don't have to be perfect and where the dynamic is, instead of comparative, relational. And that's growing up in nature. What is it? It's a relational environment. Everything, you get more attuned to yourself by being attuned to other things. And so the village is a relational field in which we are more connected to each other. And it's amazing. There is this like deep impulse in people to get back to community, to get back to a sense of connection. And I guess my final thoughts on that is it's activism. You know, and, and what I see in people that this consciousness comes alive in is, is the feeling of enough, as I said. There is a return to simplicity. They stop wanting lots of stuff. They just want simple things. There is a desire to serve that seems to naturally arise. Desire, I want to share something. I want to give something. There is a return to creativity, uh, you know, as opposed to creating rather than just consuming. Mm -hmm. And there's a deep impulse back towards nature. I think the village consciousness is an activation inside each one of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get to the ceremonial offering portion, I wanted to ask, you know, is there anything pertaining to 
shamanism in general or your particular shamanic path that is percolating up inside of you at all that just feels like it wants to be shared? Number one, I know this is like an infinitely large <laughs> portal I just opened. <laughs> Number two, I know that it also can be a sensitive one because, you know, I don't, every shaman is different in terms of like, I'm instructed to use the title shaman. I don't know how you feel in terms of comfort level, if you call yourself that or not. And so, but I, because I know you do this work, mm -hmm. and you facilitate this work, I didn't want to, you know, skip over it. So I'd love to open this part up if you want to share anything. What, uh, what kind of direction? Like, Any I mean, direction. Uh... I mean, if you want to share what led you into the clear knowingness inside that you are to be of service in mm -hmm. holding space for other people's healing processes or an impactful um, shamanic. Well, you've shared actually a couple of impactful mm -hmm. medicine ceremonies already because that, that particular calling is a very specific one. You know, mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of healers, lightworkers, whatever you want to call all of us doing all this, all these things, but the shamanic thread is a very, particular one so yeah. i was just curious how that one um came back alive inside of you i mean i think that's what i was lucky with is that you know i grew up around amazing trackers and when i met my mentor in that space my teacher in that space what i saw was a, an incredible tracker and i watched how he watched and i watched how he sensed and you know, I was just lucky to spend a lot of time with him. And he slowly started to to hand me my work. Mm -hmm. And I I would say that almost in that first ceremony, I knew that would be a part of it. You know, mm -hmm. and it started in that first ceremony. But, but our, our relationship, and I think that he was aware in that first ceremony, as I felt the energy move, he was aware that I was aware of it. But I had a lot of my own work to do. So that was about a three-year process. I did my own work. And then he really started to offer me incredible mentorship. And so I was just lucky to have, you know, time, lots of time with someone who was just truly, truly magical. So I'm not sure if that answers the question. Well, I guess a deeper section of that for me was I got an example of what I would call now power through presence. You know, not a hierarchical power, but a power that can occur the more you do your own work and you shed the roles that you thought you were meant to have mm -hmm. the roles of how you thought you were meant to show up the roles of what you think would make you valuable as you shed that and as you become in touch with the trauma and the way certain things froze you and as you bring awareness to those that starts to move you know and as it starts to move what replaces it is the capacity to be present and so i wouldn't call myself you know anything i just go around and I, I be present, as present as I can. That presence continues to pull my life forward. And a, a few years ago, you know, one of the things that he said to me was, you know, because I, I was so full of striving. I wanted to do something valuable in the world. And I wanted to do something. And, you know, what will keep you from feeling like you're achieving anything but the desire to do it, you know, like. Mm -hmm. One day he said to me, um, you know, we, we were sitting in a group and he said, you know, I'm not doing this. This is what happens around me. And, mm. you know, at first I was like, and then when I, in more recent years, I just noticed what happens around me. And that as a way to help myself tap into what's essential and what's my work. And, you know, usually wherever I go, there'll be a fire. And wherever I go, there'll be stories. 
And wherever I go, there'll be a gathering. And wherever I go, pretense will drop. Mm-hmm. And often I will sit for people and people will learn how to be themselves. And that's just, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I just go and be present and that seems to be what happens. I you know? love it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's, a, it's an upside down life. That's great. That's a beautiful way of expressing how how it works for you. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I guess my last little just random question, um, there's a couple parts to it. I'm curious, I don't know if this is the ideal way of asking it, but what are, are a couple of things that you stand for the most? Like, are there... I mean, maybe it is just the presence, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be like, oh, I believe in saving the whatever, you know what I mean? But, you know, just what are a couple of those causes, humanitarian or otherwise, that just really fuel a fire inside of you that you stand strongly for? You know, I, growing up, I always thought I would be a conservationist, but my journey with that type of activism has changed. And I think there's incredible work being done. And I think that there are many people who know that that's their work. But for me, I've become incredibly focused on the power that can happen inside a person when a person heals. Mm -hmm. So every act of healing, every act of healing seems to produce more healing. And so that my activism now is to help people get in touch with their gifts, to help people release trauma, uh, and to help people learn how to be and share themselves. Because it seems an incredible humanity comes out of that. And so, you know, you know, I did a lot of work in the literacy space and I still am very involved in creating education in the villages in South Africa. I do that work, but really I'm focused on creating transformation in people because that seems to me, it's just the way an act of healing travels yeah. feels like what I'm meant to serve right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Aho. Um, <laughs> so it does now feel like a nice time to voyage the listeners into wherever you want to voyage us. Oh, my goodness. I mean, yeah, thank you for this opportunity. <laughs> oh, thank you for your generosity. Yeah. I so it's been so lovely talking to you and Likewise. you just emanate, you know. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah. So maybe we'll just we'll just go inwards a little bit now. Beautiful. And do you recommend, does it matter if they lay down or sit up or what I would say is just, you know, find yourself uh, listening to this now and, and just orientate yourself in a way that feels comfortable to you. You might sit or you might lie down. What I would really like you to do is start to bring some awareness to your body. Just feel that beautiful, subtle energy vibrating in you. You might bring the awareness to your hands. See if you can feel that inner energy field inside of your hands now. Feel the presence of your whole body. Feel that alive, animating current. Become aware of your breathing. And slowly we start to take ourselves inward. We take ourselves into that wild, wild place inside of us. That wild natural space that we are. 
And I want you to find yourself in an African savanna, late in the afternoon light. To the west of you, the sun is dancing across the horizon. Beautiful, long beams of light streak the air. And in this beautiful clearing, you might notice a beautiful marula tree just a few yards away from you. Beautiful gray branches and a thick gray stem. The tree is ripe with marula fruit. And I want you to slowly walk yourself over to the base of that tree. And as you walk, feel the depth of the silence around you. You are the only person for miles and miles around. You might hear the faint buzz of a single scarab beetle as it goes past. And take yourself to the base of that beautiful tree and turn yourself to face that beautiful sunset and slide down to the base of that tree and sit yourself down. Feel the warmth of the bark against your back. Feel the warmth of the ground underneath you, thousands of years old. And allow now a deep, ancient African energy to flow up into you. Feel it like a current of warm water from the pool of a warm river moving up your back. And turn yourself now so that your eyes find the very edge of where the open clearing gives way to a thick woodland. Notice now an animal is emerging from the thicket. See the branches shake as a huge bull elephant slowly emerges into the clearing at sunset. And watch as his huge tusks arch down towards the ground. Watch that beautiful sensual movement as that six-ton body begins to cross the clearing towards you. Stay tuned in to the energy of your body. Feel the aliveness. Feel this incredible, colossal elephant energy moving towards you. Watch how the ears flap. Take in every wrinkle on the trunk. See how that left tusk has been worn down from years of using it. Notice how that right tusk almost touches the ground. 
And as he moves towards you with that perfect elephant lope, notice how the cartilage in his feet expands as they touch the ground. And now the scent hits you. The deep scent of crushed vegetation. And sit still against the base of that warm tree as that elephant bull walks right up to you. And as he comes closer, you feel his energy entering into your energy. You feel yourself expanding in some fundamental way. Feel it now, wherever you are. Understand that through this frequency, Elephant came to you. Elephant came to you now, full of an ancient wisdom. Elephant came to you after crossing thousands of miles of land. Elephant came to you wherever you are. And as you feel that energy, fill your energy. And you feel the solidness of that tree behind you. And you feel that beautiful African energy underneath you. Ask Elephant now. Elephant, what do you have to teach me? Elephant, what is your message for me? Elephant, please show me. Ask it inside yourself now and sit and wait for the answer. Elephant came to you with a message today. Elephant, what message do you have for me? And look closely at those big, beautiful ears. And look closely at those gentle eyes. And look closely at the way that beautiful trunk hangs. And the way that ivory shines. And then Elephant shakes his head. And he turns from you. And he begins to move past you. But Elephant knows you, and now you know Elephant. And I want you to imagine a bowl of millions of stars now slowly starting to appear above you. And as that light fades behind the mountains far away, those stars become brighter in that dark, dark African sky. And look up into them, their myriad dimensions. Look up into that infinity and feel yourself for a moment now as a part of that. Feel yourself connected to some ancient way, to some beautiful nature, to some incredible starlit sky. And know that you can only see what you are. And so if you have seen a starlit sky as I've spoken, or you have seen an elephant, or you have seen a marula tree, or you have seen an African sunset, 
then know that you could only see it in your mind's eye, for it is what you are. Let yourself be fully in your own nature. Let yourself be a child of nature. And let that nature speak in you with the message and the medicine you need for your own life. Thank you. Thank you, elephant friend. At first, all, I actually didn't tune in if it was a male or a female, but all it was doing was the, what do you call the sound they make? I don't even know. The, the a, trumpet. The trumpet, yeah, yeah. Just very loud, like lifting and trumpeting very loudly. But then I think the third time I asked, all it said to me in two words, it said, <laughs> be bold. Mm, be bold. Be bold. Beautiful. It's like, okay, Elephant, I got you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. So nice. You're one of, I think, other than my aunt, who was a shaman, and she was, um, after my awakening, the one of, actually the first person that um, Spirit was guiding me to mm. um, work with for my healing. And that's when the Black Panther presented was through a journey, healing journey with her. But I think other than that, and that was many years ago, you might be the only other person that I've kind of let take me on an animal journey. Oh, good. That was so good. nice. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Well, be bold, you know? Yeah. Be bold. You seem to be being very bold, though. I know. I, I agree with that. And so, yeah, when I, but I felt it in my, my blood and bones, mm. what it meant in terms of how to um and even enhance the boldness even more but mm. yeah thank you for recognizing that it has definitely been a path that's required um way more of me especially when it comes to the courage piece than i ever anticipated or knew possible mm -hmm. well you are doing it and it's been such a pleasure to be with you thank you so much for having me Thank yeah. you. Thank you for coming and thank you for your generosity of sharing the stories and the wisdom and your personal voyage and the guided uh, session at the end. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. And I'll be sure, as always, for everyone listening to put Boyd's information and uh, Londa Losey's information in the show notes and on my website, allisoncharles.com. You can find everything there. So if um, his work or the power of the land is speaking to you, you can lean into both of those uh, areas further. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, there's The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life is a nice book to look at. And we also just uh, developed a Track Your Life online retreat. Mm. So if people want to do a bit of that work, begin the journey of going inwards and developing the skills of a tracker, that's also an option now. Love that. Is that on your website? That's on my website, boydvati.com. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. All Thanks, right. everyone. We are sealing and closing off this ceremony circle space right now. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you next time.
Woo! What a powerful voyage that was. It is just my greatest honor. It brings me so much joy and activates and lights up my soul to be able to sit with these incredible embodied true spiritual masters and leaders from all over the world. I ask that you please, if you feel called, continue to support them and their work in whatever way that feels aligned for you. Please go to my website where all the show notes are listed, www.alisoncharles.com. That's www.alisoncharles.com so that you can access their direct links to their website and social media platforms and additional information about them. And remember, what makes Ceremony Circle so unique is that at the end of every single episode, as you just experienced, we immerse in a powerful ceremony, ritual, invocation, prayer, spiritual song, some sort of activation that the guest feels called to offer on that day. So listen to your intuition. If at any point moving forward, you feel called to come back and re-immerse in this guided ceremonial experience, do so. Because I guarantee every single time you experience it, you will receive a new medicine transmission, a new awareness, a new awakening aspect within your soul. It has been an honor voyaging with you Please keep the Ceremony Circle community vibes growing and activating. Find me on Instagram at I am Allison Charles. And let me know how you enjoyed this episode. Let me know how you are creating your own sacred Ceremony Circle space. Tag those in your soul fam who are immersing in the Ceremony Circle episodes and experiences with you. And let's unite in the next episode coming out next week so we can continue to activate the consciousness energies of planet Earth and the universes. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and my intention is not to provide medical advice or diagnosis. You should always consult a health professional before making drastic changes to your diet or lifestyle.